Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I'm like Ergo, short in stature, tall in power, narrow of purpose and wide of vision. And I talk too much. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 86, Kroll. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. As always, if you are a returning listener, welcome back to Verbal Diorama. If you are a brand new listener, hello and welcome to this podcast. As I explained, it is all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And hopefully you will find something within the previous 85 episodes that you will also like. But mostly, I hope you're all keeping well and enjoying this little foray into cult movies, which is something that I really wanted to do this March. I also recently announced a brand new podcast that I'm working on too. It's called Rotoscoperama, which is going to focus solely on animated movies. Because if you are a regular listener to this podcast, then you will know that I love animated movies with all my heart and soul. And it made complete sense. Rather than do animated movies ever so often or do the seasons, which I've been doing at the start of every year, is to actually do a podcast that's focused solely on animation. And basically... I really like to keep busy because if you are a regular listener, you will know that I do a lot of different things. But first, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for the fantastic, fantastic Mr. Fox feedback, which was in episode 84. And there have been a couple of teething issues because I recently moved podcast hosts. And so some apps didn't get Fantastic Mr. Fox straight away, or they had to resubscribe to get that episode. But if you're listening to this episode, then that means you either never had an issue, or you had an issue and it's since been resolved. The vast majority of podcast apps are absolutely fine. It's just, there's so many different apps now that it's kind of hard to keep track over every single one of them. And it was just a few of the smaller apps that seem to be having a bit of a problem. But anyway, I, I am very grateful for the feedback for Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's a movie that so many people really, really love. And for a lot of people like me, it was kind of a gateway to Wes Anderson. But I'm not the only one who thinks that. So 
Fazis and Mr Fox was a really, really well-received episode. On to Krull, uh, which is one of my favourite 80s fantasy movies. Um, and I'm a big fan of 80s fantasy movies. I actually did a recent article in Film Stories magazine, which was all about 80s fantasy creatures. But 80s fantasy movies are one of my favourite genres of movie. Has to specifically be 80s. <laughs> and the 80s was a great era for fantasy movies. And it kind of links quite nicely, sort of, in a weird way, to the previous episode. Because the last episode, which was Big Trouble in Little China, was all about a guy kidnapping and attempting to marry a young woman. And it seems like the 80s was kind of all about this trope. Uh, because here we have another young woman, a princess being kidnapped by a beast, and him wanting her to be his queen for literally no reason. At least she doesn't have green eyes, though, so she's safe from David Lopan at the very least. Let's go to a place where Lord of the Rings meets Arthurian legend, meets Star Wars, meets Dungeons and Dragons, and listen to the trailer for Krull. Beyond our time, beyond our universe, there is a planet besieged by alien invaders where a young king must rescue his love from the clutches of the beast or risk the death of his world. A world called Krull. Arm yourself. We'll fight together. To this world have come the Slayers and their overlord, the Beast. If you consent to be my queen, I will halt the attacks of the Slayers. Their incredible power has taken the planet by force. Their inhuman savagery has got to be stopped. And these are the ones who must stop it. Thieves. Let's just kill them and be done with it. Warriors. Wizards. A changeling. That rudeness. I think I'll turn you into a goose. A cyclops. That's the second time you've saved my life. A child. A king. I give fire to water. It will not return, except from the hand of the woman I choose as my wife. Unlikely allies. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. Battling an unbeatable enemy. For the life of the Princess Lissa. He's too powerful. And the freedom of the planet Kroll. <laughs> Courage lives in many worlds. But the bravest of all is Kroll. A world light years beyond your imagination. A monster named the Beast and its army, the Slayers, land on and attack the planet Krull. In order to stop the invaders, two hostile nations decide to join their forces by the marriage of Princess Lyssa and Prince Colwyn. During the ceremony, the Slayers attack the palace, kill both kings, wound Colwyn and kidnap Lyssa. The next morning, the wise Yanir seeks and finds Colwyn. With Yanir's help, Colwyn gains possession of a magic weapon, the Glaive, finds a band of allies and all together they go on their quest to find the Beast's Black Fortress to free Lyssa. We'll quickly run through the cast. As always, we have Ken Marshall as Prince Colwyn. Lisette Anthony as Princess Lissa. Her voice was actually overdubbed by Lindsay Krauss from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, no less. Trevor Martin as the voice of the Beast. Freddie Jones as Yania. David Batley as Ergo. 
Bernard Breslau as Rel the Cyclops, Alan Armstrong as Torquil, John Welsh as the Emerald Seer, Graham McGrath as Titch, Liam Neeson as Keegan, Robbie Coltrane as Run, his voice was overdubbed by Michael Elphick, Dickon Ashworth as Bardolph, Todd Carty as Oswin, and Francesca Annis as the Widow of the Web. It was written by Stanford Sherman and directed by Peter Yates. And sci-fi and fantasy are literally two of my favourite genres of movies in the entire world, so it's probably no surprise to anyone that 80s fantasy movies are very much my jam. From the sword and sorcery epics of Conan the Barbarian and Red Sonja, fairy tale fantasy like The Princess Bride and Willow, both of which have been featured on this podcast before, to the whimsical fantasy of Labyrinth, and its abundance of excellent puppet work, I'm a big fan of puppet work, and Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion creatures from Greek myth, like Clash of the Titans, and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which is technically 70s, but I used to watch it all the time as a kid. And this is basically the genre of movie that I grew up watching the most. And you add to that mix something else as well that I grew up watching. Because obviously just before all of these things were in the public consciousness, you have to go back to 1977 and a little movie called Star Wars. And it's no secret that George Lucas borrowed from other movies to create Star Wars. Um, And Star Wars was such a massive hit when it was released that other studios then attempted to cash in on the success of Star Wars. Movies like Battle Beyond the Stars, Jason of Star Command, The Black Hole, Message from Space, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone and Star Crash. And I mean, if you've heard of any of those movies, then well done you, because I have not heard of any of them. Uh, (laughs) These are all completely new to me. And they were all based on Star Wars to a certain degree. Even the original Battlestar Galactica series was inspired by Star Wars. And I've not seen the original Battlestar Galactica, but I'm a massive fan of the 2004 remake series. And Krull itself is also partially inspired by Star Wars. If the opening scenes of the Beast ship in space or the fact that Krull has two sons, don't jog your memory. Uh, Cinema has a lot to thank Star Wars for in general. I mean, and also a lot to not thank it for. Hashtag toxic fandom. But I'd like to thank it for Krull more than anything else, more than even Ewan McGregor as young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because despite its many flaws, and I'm going to come to its many flaws, because it has a lot of flaws, this movie, especially when you watch it as a grown-up and you realise that it's got a lot of flaws. I absolutely adore Krull, like completely, even though I'll admit it's not the greatest made movie in the world, it is perfect because of its imperfections to me. So let's go into the making of Krull, because Krull is a really, really fascinating movie. So Krull started out as a first draft called The Dragons of Krull, which was commissioned by the then president of Columbia Pictures, Frank Price, in 1980. Price asked producer Ron Silverman if he wanted to make a fantasy movie and Silverman said yes and basically he knew the perfect writer in Stanford Sherman who had written Any Which Way You Can and Stanford Sherman put together this script for The Dragons of Krull. Director Peter Yates who was known for his work on Bullet, The Deep and Breaking Away was working on Eyewitness in New York at the time but Krull's producers agreed to wait for Yates to become available because they wanted him to work on this fantasy epic. Despite the original draft, including underwater shots, something that he'd already done extensively for The Deep, he agreed to do Krull as it seemed like a challenge. Rather than be a realistic movie, it would be a special effects-laden sword and sorcery epic, 
And that really appealed to Peter Yates. Once Yates was on board, a year of pre-production was underway with Sherman modifying the screenplay. What was The Dragons of Krull, which was originally a medieval story with a dragon as the main antagonist, that dragon obviously would become more of a humanoid reptile. The title, The Dragons of Krull, made no sense without any actual dragons, and so the movie just simply became Krull. Steve Tessick was also brought on board to write a second version of the screenplay, which eventually was completely discarded. Production designer Stephen Grimes started sketching out his ideas for the planet Krull, and the principal cast then started to come together. And I'm going to talk about the cast uh, a little bit later as well. When Krull was envisioned, it was originally set in more locations. And this was when it was more of a medieval fantasy, but reducing the medieval aspects meant a switch of tone to more outright fantasy. And this change meant more of a reliance on soundstage shooting than shooting on location. And despite the reduction in shooting locations, Krull was not a cheap movie. I'll talk about finances a bit later as well. So Krull had 23 sets, utilised more than 10 of the sound stages at Pinewood Studios 007 stage, which was transformed into locations such as the Swamp and the Spiderweb. They did shoot on location uh, as well in Italy and in the UK. Filming on Krull began on the 25th of January 1983, and the first scene shot was of Yinia climbing the spider's web to meet with the Widow of the Web. Actor Freddie Jones actually did the stunt himself, and he didn't use any safety cabling because it would be visible in shot. And one of my favourite parts of Krull, and there's a lot of favourite parts of Krull, but one of my favourites is the beautiful stop-motion spider uh, that's in that particular scene. Um, And the spider was created by Steve Archer. He'd previously worked on 1981's Clash of the Titans, which I mentioned at the top of this episode. The intricate webbing was created by Derek Meddings, who was an Oscar-winning special effects designer who'd worked on the James Bond series between 1973 and 1995. He'd also worked on 1989's Batman and 1978's Superman. So Derek Meddings had serious pedigree when it came to special effects. So the scene itself was mostly miniatures with the spider superimposed afterwards. And the original design of the spider was completely different to the one that was in the finished movie. The problem was that because the concept around Krull kept changing throughout shooting, uh, quite a lot of what they'd already done had to be discarded for the change. Part of the reason why this movie was so expensive was the fact it was pretty much constantly changing. The huge swamp, as I said, was built inside at Pinewood Studios, But obviously bear in mind that this was the middle of winter when they were filming this movie and the huge set was freezing cold because with sets that huge, actually heating those sets was not possible. The set also became waterlogged, which obviously didn't particularly help with that general feeling of cold. And the famous quicksand was actually made out of cork shavings. It took five months to construct the swamp, uh, which also included eight foot deep pools. In some scenes, Peter Yates had to actually balance himself on a raft to direct, and some shots had to even be filmed by camera operators in wetsuits. And although behind the scenes of Krull was generally seen as a good place to work, I want to talk about Nick Maley a bit later, Uh, but Nick Maley is on record basically saying that Krull was one of the best experiences that he'd ever had 
working in movies. He absolutely loved the experience of working on Krull. Um, and the general consensus is that people loved working on this movie, despite the fact that it was cold and wet and <laughs> the middle of winter. But as I said, the concepts that were within Krull were constantly evolving and constantly changing. Concepts were being created, developed, and then changed or scrapped. At one point, Lisette Antony's character, Princess Lissa, was going to become the villain at the end. But then it was changed back to her just being a helpless princess, which Lisette Anthony actually thought was quite dull and boring. She would have actually preferred to have been the villain. As I said, this movie has a lot of flaws. And it is true that the characters in this movie are probably the dullest part of the whole movie. And Ken Marshall and Lisette Anthony are gorgeous to look at, but they don't really offer much more than kind of this standard prince and princess trope. You know, he's brave, she's helpless, he's going to rescue her, she's going to be targeted for marriage by the villain. But in Krull, you don't really need much more than that because you don't come to Krull for these incredible, complex, well-rounded characters. You come to Krull for the visuals and you come to Krull for the music and not so much for the characters or story. Despite the fact that I have a massive soft spot for Ergo, uh, Ergo is one of my favourite characters, he always has been. I'm also very fond of Rel, the Cyclops as well. Um, and as I've grown up with Krull, and it's, <laughs> it's quite a scary movie actually. And a lot of the stuff from Krull has kind of stuck with me from a, a frightened child point of view. But as I say, watching it as an adult, you kind of watch this movie and you realise, well, they're supposed to be the king and queen of a kingdom, but there are no people. <laughs> The only other people that you actually get to meet are one of Keegan's many wives uh, and a couple of villagers. But otherwise, you don't really see anyone else in this whole kingdom apart from the protagonists and the slayers and the beast. And then you realise, again, at the end, that the vast majority of this travelling party have died, often in quite horrific circumstances, and literally no one else in the group cares. Because at the end, they're just like, oh yeah, let's just walk off. We're really happy. <laughs> it's just like, no, literally most of the people in your group have died tragically. But anyway, I digress. It's only when you look at the characters in this movie that you see slight similarities to, to Star Wars. And you can really see like where they picked general kind of Star Wars characters. Um, because you have an old mountain hermit in Yanir. He's like the Ben Kenobi character. He's there to spur Colwyn, who's the Luke character, into saving the princess, the Leia character. But first he needs to find and train with his weapon, which is the glaive, not a lightsaber, uh, which is a five-bladed star that Colwyn can magically control, which, to be fair, he actually has zero training. At least Luke Skywalker had a little bit of training. And the glaive is pretty cool, as weapons go. Uh, it was also featured in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. If it's featured in Ready Player One, it kind of means it's definitely immortalised in geek fandom and culture. The problem with the glaive is it's barely used in the movie. And when it is used, it then gets stuck in the beast. <laughs> and then it doesn't even kill the beast. But, but you know what? I don't care. It's one of the most instantly recognisable parts of this movie. Anyone who's seen this movie knows what the glaive is, knows what the glaive looks like, knows what the glaive does. And it is a cool weapon. Like, to have a glaive that you can control with your mind uh, or your hand. I mean, it's never really explained how Colwyn can magically control the glaive. 
but it doesn't matter because it's a cool weapon. Um, <laughs> other things that this movie, like, it just literally makes no sense, but I'm going to say it. So when Yanir is in the web, uh, we find out that the widow of the web was his girlfriend and that she had become pregnant with his child. But when he left her for undisclosed but important reasons, it's very clear that the reasons were important, she had a child. She had a son. And then you remember, well, this is a family movie. And she committed infanticide. So she killed the baby. And then because she killed the baby, she was cursed with being the widow of the web as a punishment for the crime. And that's quite heavy for like a family fantasy movie to have a character admit that she killed a baby. But then Yanir actually isn't really bothered by it. And it's like, he's just found out that he had a baby son and that his baby son died and that she killed his baby son. And it just kind of goes back to my point that these characters literally don't care about death. <laughs> it's just, it's, if you're a person listening and you've never seen Krull, and the way that I'm explaining Krull, you're probably going to think, well, this movie sounds horrendous. Like, why would anyone love this movie? It sounds awful. It's really, really not. It's just when you watch this movie as an adult, you pick up on all these things that actually don't make any sense, but you don't care that it doesn't make sense. Because the love you have for this movie is so strong, it doesn't matter. I'm going to move away from talking about faults with Krull, for a little bit anyway, because there are a lot of things with Krull that are really, really superb. And I want to highlight a couple of things. So the first thing is, the most of the stunts were done by the principal cast. I've already mentioned Freddie Jones as Yunia in The Spider's Web. Uh, Ken Marshall also did a lot of his own stunts as well. He actually almost got his chest crushed through two floor set pieces in the Black Fortress. And this is the scene where the group are walking and the floor splits into two and a couple of the group slide down into the lower floor. Prince Colwyn lowers himself down in between the gap to save the people who are down there. And what happens in the scene is that the two parts of the floor start to come back together. And so he did the stunt and he got trapped between the two floor pieces because the floor was working on hydraulics and he managed to get himself out. And then he said, well, I'll, I'll do the stunt again. And the next time he did it, he did it at a slower pace and he managed to get himself fully through. And then he said, well, I want to do it again at full speed. And so the next time he did it, he thought he'd made it through before the pieces of the floor hydraulically shut together, but he actually got his heel caught. And he had no feeling in that heel for months afterwards. Stuntmen were used in the scene with the fire mares. Uh, they were specially trained Clydesdale horses and they were trained to run on treadmills. Well, when the characters actually attempt to tame the horses, you can actually see one of the stuntmen jumping off a cliff and basically failing to land on a horse because uh, the horse moved out of the way. It's quite funny. But then you think about it and you think, well, fire mares famously travel at a thousand leagues in a day, which in modern standards is about 145 miles per hour. So can't have been that easy for a stuntman to actually get on one of those horses. The special effects and specifically the creature effects are my favourite part of Krull. And probably one of the reasons why I've consistently loved this movie since I was a kid. I mentioned Rel the Cyclops earlier. He is a wonderful creation. And Bernard Breslau, who is a very tall man, I think he was six foot seven, so incredibly tall. He had a prosthetic radio controlled eye covering the top half of his face and prosthetics on the bottom half of his face. And this basically rendered him almost completely blind. If you watch closely in a few scenes, you'll actually see him slightly stumble 
or not fully know where to go. And it's all genuine because he couldn't see. He actually relied on the rest of the cast to assist him in helping him to be where he needed to be. The design for Rel was crafted by Nick Maley, who I mentioned a little bit earlier. He also worked on Return of the Jedi, and he also worked on the design for The Beast, which was partially obscured for most of the movie, but I'm going to come back to that. Um, so Nick Maley had taken over from Chris Tucker, who'd worked on the pre-production of Krull, but due to creative differences had already left the project. The Beast costume was a bit of a complicated beast, so to speak. Uh, the Beast's eyes and eyelids were radio-controlled. The hands had 12 working fingers on each, uh, the beast also had working lungs and heart. Uh, the artificial heart pumped fluid through the body and the lungs worked to show the movement of the chest. The beast was actually performed by a woman in a suit, uh, which was actually a purposeful choice to get away from the stuntman in a suit look. The beast itself was a beautifully and intricately designed and built creature. And so when you actually see the movie and you realise that the beast is so obscured all the time, you very rarely see any of the detail that Nick Maley went into. And Nick Maley was incredibly disappointed with the final result in the movie. In the way that the beast was filmed meant that you couldn't actually see the level of design on the body. Due to this kind of distorted manner, it almost looks like it's obscured behind a screen for most of the movie. And that's actually a little bit disappointing because if you go online and you actually look at the incredible level of detail that Nick Maley went into on the beast, it's actually a little bit disappointing that we never actually got to see the beast in its full glory. We never got to really appreciate the beast or the beast's power because, let's be honest, um, the beast as an antagonist is not the scariest of villains in the entire world. But what were scary uh, were the Slayers, which are basically the Beast's henchmen. And the Slayers uh, was something that Nick Maley wasn't supposed to be involved with. He basically had his hands full with all of these other designs. Uh, so the production went ahead with a completely different design for the Slayers. And 10 days before principal photography started, the original Slayer costumes just weren't working. And so Nick Maley then got involved and he pulled together extra people. And for 10 days, the team worked 24 hours a day in 12-hour shifts to basically get these intricately designed costumes for the Beast's henchmen made. They ended up making 40 in those 10 days, as well as making some stop-motion Slayers as well. Um, and the Slayers were the ones that kind of gave me the most nightmares as a kid, mainly due to the fact that they looked human, but they weren't human, uh, because they had brain worms. And, <laughs> and when you're a kid and something dies on screen, and the brain worm comes out and slithers off underground. It's a really frightening proposition to think that you could have a brain worm in your head. And I do, I do remember thinking about this quite a lot as a child about brain worms. And, <laughs> and that's how this movie has stayed with me for so long. It's brain worms. Maybe there's a worm in my brain. Maybe that's why I love Krull so much. It's because the brain worm tells me to. And I wanted to just quickly mention The Widow of the Web as well, because Francesca Annis, probably one of the most beautiful actresses of her generation. She was 37 when this movie was made, and she doesn't look 37 uh, because she is in layers of complex prosthetic makeup. Uh, it's consisted of 22 pieces. And, um, and honestly, I still think it's one of the best looking examples of ageing makeup 
that exist in cinema. I mean, you think about how old this movie is, it's almost 40 years old. And she looks incredible uh, in this movie as an old woman. And she's not an old woman in real life. It's quite phenomenal, really. That is the power of makeup. That is the power of practical makeup and effects. And again, if CGI was a thing in 1983, it would look awful. Derek Meddings, I mentioned him earlier, he also built a 20-foot high castle for false perspective shots in Italy. That was for Lissa's family castle, as well as a 12-foot high black fortress, which included lighting systems and was designed like big jigsaw puzzle, so it could be pulled apart at the end. I mentioned one of my favourite characters was Ergo, and one of the things that I love about Ergo is obviously the fact that he can transform into different animals. And this kind of transitional sequence would be revolutionised in 1986's Willow. I did an episode on that, it's episode 16. And Willow used a technique called Morph, which is basically coming on leaps and bounds from the, uh, the transformation that Ergo does in Krull. And obviously you have to appreciate, Krull came several years before Willow, but the effect in Krull is still really, really fantastic. And basically it was achieved in a really simple way. So the actor David Batley would drop to his knees and his image would basically be reduced in size to the size of a puppy or a goose. And then halfway through that transformation, they would then introduce an image of a puppy or a goose, which would reduce in size. And then they basically blended the two images together to make it look like Ergo was transforming into something. And listen, I feel like this episode is a little bit of a, well, Krull isn't great, <laughs> but it kind of is. Um, but Krull genuinely does have everything. You know, it does have action, it's got fighting, it's got peril, it's got effects, music, romance, bit of science fiction, magic, and cool weapons. Um, and I kind of feel like, well, what's not to love with all of those things? Sure, parts of those things don't really work, but since when does a great fun movie have to have everything? It could just have like parts of it some, rather than kind of just be a completely brilliant movie. And in 1983, Krull struggled. But nowadays, whilst I think many people will admit to never seeing it because they've never had the experience of seeing it, I kind of feel that those who have had the experience of seeing Krull will probably remember it incredibly fondly for all of those reasons that I mentioned. For the fact that it's, it might not have the best script uh, and it might not have the most well-rounded characters. And those characters may not be all too concerned with death and violent death. But what it does do, it does really, really well. And I kind of feel like everyone loves a trier. And Krull is a real trier. It's trying to be different. It's trying to be unique. It's trying to be all of these different things together. The space opera, the medieval story, the sword and sorcery fantasy tale. And it kind of works, actually, at all of those things. But it also kind of doesn't. But... It doesn't matter that it doesn't, because it's just so much fun. I want to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And I've never failed at this. I've always found something. And obviously, linking Keanu to Krull, I mean, unless I go for something as mundane as, well, they both start with the letter K, which I'm not going to do, because that'd just be ridiculous. I did actually find something to link Keanu with Krull because I found a review for Keanu's 2013 film, 47 Ronin. 
which the reviewer describes 47 Ronin as, and I quote, Krull masturbates Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. And to be honest, that just actually makes me want to watch 47 Ronin because Krull is one of my favourites. And while it's not my favourite Robin Hood movie, because if you've listened to the episode that I did on Robin Hood a few episodes ago, you'll know that Disney's Robin Hood is my favourite Robin Hood, followed by Robin Hood Men in Tights. But I am very fond of Prince of Thieves, so it actually kind of makes me want to watch 47 Ronin now, which um, I may just have to do, because if it is anything like Krull, and I know 47 Ronin was not a critical darling, but neither was Krull. Literally the greatest thing about Krull, the greatest, apart from the special effects and the character design, is the music. And I'm a big fan of James Horner. This podcast is a massive fan of James Horner. Uh, Regular listeners will know that his Willow score makes me cry. And so does his Krull score. And I can vouch for that because I rewatched Krull at the weekend in preparation for this podcast. And I was crying at the score. Uh, It's definitely a highlight of the movie, just in general. It was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Ambrosian Singers. And uh, and obviously this was pre-Oscar win. James Horner. This is before he obviously won for Titanic. But I think his 80s scores, Krull and Willow in particular, are fantastic scores. They are both in my favourite scores of all time. Key pieces of the Krull score would actually be reused for The Rocketeer, which is episode 61 of this podcast. And it's also another James Horner score that I love completely. Uh, James Horner can do no wrong. As far as I'm concerned, I absolutely adore his work. I'm sad that he's not with us anymore, but I adore the music in Krull. It's one of the best parts of the whole movie. So Krull was released on the 29th of July 1983 in the US and the 27th of December in the UK and with a budget of 30 million dollars and a release date the same weekend as National Lampoon's Vacation as well as Residual Box Office from Jaws 3D, Star Wars Return of the Jedi and Staying Alive, along with the re-release of Snow White, which was one of the eight re-releases I mentioned back in episode 81, Krull really struggled. It would gross $5.5 million in its first weekend and $8 million in its first week, and it would peak at fourth in the US box office its first weekend. It would go on to make roughly double that of its first week, and it would end up bringing in $16.9 million dollars, against a $30 million cost, uh, which would essentially make it a bit of a box office failure. Well, there's no bit. It is a box office failure. And I wanted to just give a special shout out to friends of the podcast, Nick and Dustin, from the Cherry Bombs podcast. They previously mentioned on their Krull episode about the feature-packed DVD of Krull, which I then realised that I had. (laughs) And it's one of those. I kind of knew in the back of my mind I had Krull on DVD, But because I have so many DVDs, I think I just kind of forgot. So anyway, I realised I had this amazingly feature-packed DVD, uh, which is kind of opposed to the Blu-ray release, which has zero special features. Uh, And I did not know this until I listened to Cherry Bombs. So uh, basically, if you want to buy a copy of Krull, go for the DVD, because the DVD has so much more extra features in there And the Blu-ray is just a massive disappointment, features-wise. So, thanks Nick and Dustin for letting me know about my feature-packed DVD. As I mentioned, critics weren't kind to Krull, but reception has warmed in recent years. And the reason why I'm doing it on this podcast is it's developed a cult following. Uh, And that is basically due to its mix of kind of 
sort of existing IPs uh, and relatable brands, such as things like Dungeons and Dragons, because it it is kind of a bit Dungeons and Dragons meets Excalibur meets Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings fantasy epic. So basically, if you like any of those things, chances are you will probably quite enjoy Krull. It didn't get any massive awards hauls. It would receive three Saturn Award nominations. It would go on to actually win a Stinker's Bad Movie Award for Worst Picture, which is totally uncalled for in my opinion, actually. Um, And who even talks about Stinker's Bad Movie Awards these days? So, you know, Krull is now considered a cult favourite. Stinker's Bad Movie Awards... Where are you now? (laughs) I'm not bitter. So when Krull was being made uh, just before it was released, Krull 2 and Krull 3 were already being envisaged back in 1983. And obviously at the time it was box office dependent. But as I've already said, the box office for Krull was not conducive to any sort of sequel. And, And to be perfectly honest, my argument is we do not need to go back to Krull. Uh, The king and queen would go on to have a son who would rule the galaxy, and we know this already. Um, So Krull really is kind of a perfect one and done. There was some talk in 2019 of the Russo brothers being interested in a Krull reboot. That was in an interview with Birth Movies Death. But to be honest, that seems like more of an offhand comment rather than a set-in-stone decision. A novelisation of Krull was written by Alan Dean Foster, and Marvel Comics also published Marvel Super Special No. 28, which was a comic book adaptation of Krull written by David Michelini and designed by Brett Blevins and Vince Coletta as a two-issue limited series. Uh, A video game of Krull was also released in 1983 for the Atari 2600. It was originally planned for the Atari 5200, uh, but it never materialised for that console. An unrelated arcade game was also released by D. Gottlieb & Co. Right, moving on to social media thoughts. So I always like to get social media thoughts uh, from listeners of the podcast. And um, I always like to start with the patrons of this podcast, uh, basically because they're wonderful and they help support this podcast financially. And so not only do they get to have their comments first, they also get to have a little plug for their podcast if they have one. And so let's go to the first of our patron thoughts. It is Andy from Geek Salad. And he says, Here are a few of my thoughts about Crump. One, I begged my parents to take me to this movie, but apparently I had overspent my privileges in having them take me to The Return of the Jedi five times that summer. Two, when I first saw this movie in my 20s, I was all, what's Darkman doing here? Three, I rewatched it again with my wife a few years ago, and it's really a delightful piece of nostalgic fluff that makes no sense, but it's so much fun to watch. Four, it's impossible to say Glaive without sounding like Professor Frink from The Simpsons. <laughs> comments just tickled me a little bit um because in my head now i'm thinking of professor frink saying glaive um i don't think i sound like professor frink when i say glaive or do i now i'm thinking now my brain worm is thinking but um but to be fair i think i think andy's third comment on a delightful piece of nostalgic fluff that makes no sense is a wonderful way to summarize krull and as I said, I always give a little plug for my patrons and uh, and Andy is kind of a bit of a perennial commenter. Um, so you should know Geek Salad by now, but if you don't, they are an all-encompassing geek podcast. They cover movies, music, TV shows. 
They've did an episode on snacks at some point as well. You can obviously find them in your podcast app of choice, but I will also link to them in the show notes. Right, moving over to the rest of social media. So we'll start with the thoughts on Twitter. And we'll start with at 100thingspod, who said, It's never been said better than Bilbo in Spaced. I once punched a bloke for saying Hawk the Slayer was rubbish, when what I should have said was, Dad, you're right, but let's give Krull a try and we'll discuss it later. Um, And that's an excellent quote, by the way, from an excellent TV show. At Cherry Bombs Pod said, It's utterly unique, one of a kind, and the most underappreciated fantasy film of the 80s. One of our all-time favourites. And finally, at At The Flicks Pod said, Krull, this is why I love your show. Shout out for films people would otherwise forget. I saw it on Boxing Day 1983, the day it opened in the UK. I was working away at the time and back for Christmas. That Boxing Day, I went with a group of friends to see this movie. It was the highlight of that Christmas. A packed cinema, everyone loving the film and surrounded by friends. Is there anything better? And no, I don't think there is. Um, It's going to be really nice when the world goes back to some form of normal and we can actually do stuff like that again. There's no additional comments on Instagram or Facebook for Krull. And to be honest, I can't say I'm entirely surprised um, because this is a really, really underappreciated movie. Yes, it is a bit of a cult favourite, but I think there's still quite a few people out there who haven't seen it. And so if you are listening and you haven't seen it, I would absolutely implore you to, first of all, get it on DVD, as I said. Um, And second of all, despite the shortcomings of this movie... It is so much fun and so well worth your time. So how do I close out an episode on Krull? (laughs) Um, I mean, you can easily pull this movie apart without trying too hard. The characters are bland, the glaive is overhyped, and the beast is zero threat. But for me, Krull encapsulates everything brilliant about 80s fantasy movies. The slightly dodgy script, the zero impact death, uh, the confusing mythology... It doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't. Against this, the beautiful score, simple hero's quest story, chaotic battles here and there, and this beautiful, intricate, gorgeous, fantastic creature design. And all great fantasy movies have to have moments of fear-induced horror. And while the beast doesn't quite deliver, the slayers with their screeches and the worm brains have genuinely stayed with me for life. The shape-shifting creature who murders the Emerald Seer and takes his place has stayed with me too. But despite its inadequacies and issues, it's a seriously impressive achievement in its creative production design, the locations, sets, makeup, creature effects. This movie is almost 40 years old and it doesn't look 40 years old. And is the power of love as a weapon to defeat the ultimate evil contrived? Hell yes. But does it lessen my love for Krull? Absolutely not. I love Krull. (laughs) I genuinely love this movie with all of my heart. And I feel like I'm having to defend it now (laughs) because I feel like I've maybe been a bit too harsh on it. But, you know, for all of the things that it doesn't quite do, it's just so much fun to watch. You don't need complex characters in a movie like Krull. You just don't. I just love Krull. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Krull. If you do like this episode, if you could take a moment to leave a five-star rating or a review in something like Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser, uh, that would be superb. 
The other way that you can help Verbal Diorama is you can tell a friend about this podcast and you can help spread the word. That would just be incredible. If you did like this episode on Krull, you might also like one of the following episodes. And I've mentioned most of them in this podcast already. Episode 16, Willow. I would argue that Willow is probably the better all-round movie. But I think that Krull and Willow are comparably favourites for me because I adore Willow. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's one of the reasons why I covered Willow so early on this podcast was because A, I adore Willow and B, I felt that Willow didn't get as much love as it actually deserved. And Krull is kind of the extreme of that because I kind of feel like a lot of people will see Krull and think that it's just a bit of a mess of a movie but it really, really is so deserving of people's time and affections. So, you know, if you enjoy Willow, you will love Krull. I, I guarantee you, you will love it. Uh, episode 25 on Stardust. It is more of a fairy tale movie. But again, it, it feels really, really underappreciated. It didn't do so well at the box office. So I would always recommend Stardust because it's Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman is a great writer. So Stardust is well written. <laughs> at least. But yeah, I would always recommend Stardust. Um, episode 44, A Knight's Tale, mainly because of swords and stuff, really. Um, <laughs> and Krull's got swords. Um, but it's a really, really fun movie. And anything with the late Heath Ledger in is well worth your time. And episode 60, The Princess Bride, because, I mean, it is literally the queen of 80s fantasy movies. And again, like Willow, it's a lot more, it's a lot better written, <laughs> it's a lot better written uh, as a story than, um, than Krull, but there's a lot to love in The Princess Bride, if you love The Princess Bride, you will love Krull, uh, I, I think, well I hope, because I love The Princess Bride and I love Krull, so, um, so yeah, they would be my recommendations, let me know what you think of them. Next episode, so I'm going into another cult favourite for next episode, and this time it is from 2001, uh, and Jess is coming back on the podcast, that's my cat, by the way, if you're wondering, <laughs> um, she occasionally features on this podcast, she came on for Scooby-Doo, uh, and then she realised it was about a dog, and so we made a deal that the next time she came on it would be about a movie about cats, and so this is a movie about cats, sort of. I'm saying it's one of her favourites, but she's genuinely never seen it. Um, we're going to be talking about Josie and the Pussycats. Because I kind of feel like it's been much maligned and misunderstood uh, over the years. It's obviously an adaptation of the Archie comics and Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters. Um, and it took a pot shot at the corporatisation of the pop industry. So Josie and the Pussycats will be the next episode. It will be episode 87. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. If you wish to sign up to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. And the tiers start at $2 or £2 a month and you get some fab perks. A massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike... Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. No differences of opinion concerning any gooseberry pies with this lot. I have a merch store. It's teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. And you can buy various bits of merch there if you want. You can email me 
uh, general hellos or feedback verbaldiorama at gmail.com and my website is verbaldiorama.com and I write for film stories I write for the magazine and I write for filmstories.co.uk there is a new issue of the magazine it's just dropped and um, and yeah you can check out the articles that I've written online for free at any time and finally I just wanted to leave you with some of James Horner's wonderful score and I'm going to go listen to it and I'm probably going to go and cry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thanks very much for listening and make sure you watch Kroll. Bye. Movie should know.